When I was a kid, I used to read the Bible, try to read it, and the parts were hard. I had a King James Version, which didn't help me because that's not wasn't written in contemporary language that I was learning English. But when I got to the genealogy, this one begot this one who begot this one who begot this one. How many know the parts of the Bible I'm talking about, right? I used to say, can we get through this here? What, what's the point? And yet, the Bible tells us all scriptures inspired by God. Well, why would God put that in there? Genealogies of ancestry, trees, ancestry lines, who was your great, 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 whatever, they were very important in the Jewish culture. And that's why in the book of Matthew, Matthew starts with the genealogy of Jesus. Who were Jesus' ancestors? A lot of people are very interested who their ancestors are, especially if there was someone famous. How many people in America, I read articles, how many claim that their ancestors were on the Mayflower, the ship that came over to America? Like, you know, 150,000 people were on that ship according to people who claim my ancestor was, you know, came over with the original pilgrims. But in the Jewish mind, it was very important to prove you were Jewish. And then when it came to things like who was a priest, who could serve in the temple, who could not serve in the temple, you had to know all these things by your genealogy. What tribe? Who were your ancestors? Who was your great, great, great grandfather? Sometimes in the Bible it'll say a certain king whose father was this one and whose grandfather was that, always linking them with the people who came before them. Now, the book of Matthew is the Jewish gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It was written by a Jew, Matthew, who was a tax collector, and was written to a Jewish audience trying to convince them that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the messianic promises in the Old Testament. There were many, many promises in the Old Testament that a deliverer, a Messiah would come, and he would be the answer for the problems of his people, Israel. And many devout people were waiting for Messiah. They waited for centuries for Messiah. When Messiah comes, it'll be like this. When Messiah comes, he'll get those hated Roman soldiers off of our back, and we won't have to pay taxes anymore to those Gentile heathens, and so on and so forth. Some pictured the Messiah to come riding on a white horse as a military figure. Others saw him as something else. But there were countless promises Messiah would be coming. Did you know that hundreds of years before Jesus was born, in the book of Micah, it even says what town he would be born in? One of the great proofs of the the Bible being infallible and the Word of God. How could Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, name the town where he would be born? And the way God made that come about was so strange, through a census. They took a census And Mary and Joseph had a report to Bethlehem. And that's how the baby was born. So, so on and so forth, it was very important to try to tell Jewish people who didn't believe in Jesus, no, this is the one. And we want you to know he was fully Jewish. He was fully Jewish. Jesus was Jewish and he was real. That brought up another problem that the early church faced. 
Number one, Matthew's writing to prove that, hey, listen, Abraham, all the way down through Joseph and Mary, Jesus was a descendant of these great names. But secondly, there was a teaching that came in in the first 200 years, 300 years of the church, where the Greek influence, Greek philosophy influence was, and it invaded Christian circles, matter, anything physical, an arm, this thing, that thing, is evil in itself. The only thing that's good is the invisible world of the spirit. So you beat your body, you keep your body down, you punish your body because body is bad, evil. But spirit, invisible, is good. Well, it invaded the church and then those teachers began to say, you know, Jesus was never in a physical body. He looked like he had a body. But he couldn't have a body because that was physical and a body would be evil and the Son of God couldn't be evil at the same time as being God. So they tried to teach that Jesus was a phantom. He seemed to be real, a human, physical body, but he really was a phantom. But that raised then the question, who died on the cross? How could a phantom die on the cross? And what do those verses mean? By his blood, we have remission of sin. So they had to teach against that and prove, no, Jesus was human. And here's the mystery of the incarnation. He was fully God and yet fully man. He was a man. He was the son of man, the son of God, and no one can understand that mystery. But he was both. And the genealogy of Matthew is trying to prove both those points and was used as a reference to false doctrine. The only trouble with that was if you're God and you're going to have your son, God's son, born in human form, what family line would you pick? Who would you make the ancestors of the Son of God? I mean, if we would do that today and you want to get props and be with some elite line of people, oh, my grandfather was a billionaire. No, my great-grandfather invented a, a vaccine to cure some terrible disease. This other one wrote, you know, so many books and was brilliant, had double PhD and all of that. But that's not what God chose to do this. In fact, before we get to gen- genealogy, Uh, I want to go back to a more familiar uh, portion of Scripture, which is when the shepherds had it announced to them that somewhere in Bethlehem there was a baby who was born and he was the Messiah. So let's just look at Luke. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Remember, Jesus came. The message is good news, and he wants joy for all of you today and me. Look at me. Wherever you are living, if you're not spiritually, if you're not experiencing his joy, he wants to help you today. He does not rejoice that you're depressed and lonely and sad. That is not make God happy. Did it make, when you see your children, does that make you happy when they're depressed and lonely and biting their nails and can't concentrate? So God has brought a message of good news, great joy to all the people. Today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. 
you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That's very, I've been seeing that over and over again as I've been reading the Christmas story over and over for the last 10 days. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths. The King James has swaddling clothes. I had no idea what that meant growing up. But actually it means strips of cloth. Some of the more literal translations. You'll find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth. Mary and Joseph were so poor, all they could wrap the baby in to keep him from the cold were strips of cloth. And he was lying in a stinking manger where animals were. Why? Because there was no room at the inn. And that's happened over and over again through the centuries. Jesus finds no place in our hearts because there's no room. We're filled with all kinds of other things and there's no room for him. So... He was born in a manger. And later on, when they dedicated him at the temple, kind of like this dedication, but much more uh, Jewish and traditional, you were taught for every male, the firstborn, you were to offer an animal in the stead as a consecration sacrifice. So the Old Testament law would give you, you could buy a lamb at the temple, you could buy a goat, you'd spend a lot of money, and then you'd offer that as a sacrifice instead of your firstborn male. If you were really poor and broke, the Old Testament law said you could get some doves or some tiny birds, buy them and kill the birds. That's what Mary and Joseph had to do. That's something God could have his son born into any family, and he picked a poor family. Doesn't that tell you something about God's heart? That he roots for the underdog? That he's with poor people? If he only was for rich people, he wouldn't be for many people on the earth, because most people on the earth are poor. So God does not think that what the world calls great is great. He looks for another kind of greatness. So the little baby was wrapped in strips of cloth, and all they could afford to sacrifice were these little birds. And then as their shepherds hear that, suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And I want to now, in these just next few minutes, tell you why it's so significant that the angel said, glory to God in the highest. Well, angels do nothing but give God glory. Forever in heaven, all they do is give God glory. That's their job. They just worship, and they go on tasks that they're sent on by God. That's what angels do. But why this bursting out of glory to God in the highest because what God was doing with that baby born for you and me made the angels amazed I mean yes he made everything out of nothing he made the sun the moon the stars out of nothing this fine-tuned universe that we live in where if anything was altered very much we couldn't exist and live it's not that way by accident God created it And they used to say that in one little cell that everything grew and the origin of species and all of that. And from that simple cell, everything grew and it all just happened accidentally by natural selection. Well, that's been disproven because in the smallest little amoeba or paramecium, you remember that in school? Amoeba. How many remember an amoeba? Yeah. I didn't do well in that class. But anyway, I remember a one-cell little amoeba. Now they say there's enough intelligent information, there's enough coded information in one cell to fill up like 12 volumes of an encyclopedia. Who put that in there? 
No, it's just simple. No, it's not simple at all. So knowing all of that, the angels obviously glorify God. But now when they saw that he was sending his own son, that God was taking on the form of human flesh, they were like, glory to God in the highest. It's one thing to create a universe. It's another thing to put the moon, the sun, the sky. But to give your son for people who don't even want you? Oh, glory to God in the highest. And he was given for you and I. So now, how to place him in a family. So what family should we place him in? There's, well, let's see how God chose it. So reading in Matthew 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the end of verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Then he goes back and begins with Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. Then it goes all the way on down, I left out that, all the way down to Joseph and Mary. The two that are highlighted here are two names. Jesus was the son of Abraham. Jesus was the son of David, meaning he was the descendant. In his tree, ancestral tree, you got two big names here. You got Abraham and you got David. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. So Jesus, being Jewish, was a descendant of Abraham. David was the one that Jesus was called, son of David, have mercy on me. That was the name of the Messiah. The Messiah, when he came, would be called son of David. David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. So Jesus, son of Abraham, a descendant of Abraham, Jesus, son of David. So why would God pick those people? Those are actually the better names in this whole list. So who was Abraham? Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. What was Abraham known for in the Bible? He was a man of faith. He believed God. And the Bible says Abraham believed God and trusted him so that his faith gained him acceptance with God. Not that his life was perfect, but that he had faith in God, just like us today. We're Christians not because we live lives worthy of God's acceptance, but because we trust in Jesus. How many say amen to that? So that's, that's what salvation is about. So Abraham was a man of great faith. The only trouble was, if you put Jesus in the line of Abraham, you're going to be connected to some nasty business. Because Abraham twice in his life, according to the Bible, jeopardized his wife to save his own skin. Twice it happened, not just once. He had a breakdown of faith. See, you can have faith, but then your faith can break down. Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, you don't have to say amen. I'll say it for you and for myself. You can believe and then put in circumstances, your faith seems to go out the window. And now you're doing crazy things, saying crazy things, making crazy choices. 
So Abraham went to Egypt after he had settled in the land, the land of promise. He had come from further east, where basically Iran is, that way. And he came to the promised land, and he was fine, and God was making promises, and he was worshiping God. And then a famine came on the land, and without asking God, he went down to Egypt, because that's where food was. The only trouble was when he got to Egypt, all the Egyptian soldiers and guys were checking out his wife. And he heard them saying in Egyptian, she fine, she fine. And he got afraid because he said, they like her. They think I'm her husband, which I am. They will kill me to have her, and I will be dead. So even though God promised all of that, I can't trust him. So I got to maneuver right now. Hey, guys, meet my sister, Sarah. Oh, that's your sister? Yeah. I agree with you. She's fine. So they took her and brought her to Pharaoh's palace. His wife is with Pharaoh now, what, being groomed for the concubine? And Abraham has lied. His faith has broken down. God gets them out of that mess, but it happens again in another place. Why would you have Jesus connected to a line of people where one of them lies and jeopardizes his own wife. What kind of example is that? It's because God said, I want my son to be in that line so that people will always know, even when your faith breaks down, my son will help you get up again. Even when you mess up, and even though when you make crazy decisions, I'll find a way to get you out if you'll trust me. Because my son came to shed his blood for people whose faith breaks down. So if you're here today and your faith is broken down, you're not living and walking with Jesus like you used to. It's not good right now in your soul. I want you to know that God's not ashamed of you and he's not about to throw you away. He's Jesus, son of Abraham, of the man who broke down, loved God, had faith in God, but circumstances got the best to him. You know, I'm not going to do by show of hands. We'll just do amen. But how many in their Christian walk since they found the Lord, you've broken down in your faith and got weak and really didn't do so well? Just say amen. amen. Isn't it wonderful to know that when the devil is whispering in our ear, you fool, you failure, you think God's going to answer prayer, you think God still loves you? How many know we can stand on God's word today? Where sin abounds, grace even more abounds. Let's put our hands together and say amen to that. When your faith breaks down, like mine has over my life, you can know this is why Jesus came. He's not ashamed to be identified with Abraham. Well, we got better situation with David. David is the kind of hero you want in your ancestry. First of all, he was that little shepherd boy. Number two, he killed a lion and a bear. Boy could fight. Number two, he started writing songs. He had some of the top praise and worship songs on the charts in that day. Not only did he write songs and sing, he fought Goliath, the giant, when everyone else was afraid. He went out there with nothing but a slingshot, some stones. He took that boy down. He took him down. And everyone was shouting his praises. Then the Bible says he went out and led the armies to victory after victory. David, just build a monument for David. Jesus, 
son of David. In fact, that's what the people shouted when he came to Jerusalem the last time. Jesus, son of David, son of David. Remember the blind men yelling after him? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. David's name is linked with Jesus. Jesus calls himself son of David. And, and all through the New Testament, he's linked to David. David became the king that God wanted on the throne. Saul was really uh, the people's choice, but a very sorry example of a king. But David sat on the throne. He was the most famous of all the kings. He's the one who captured Jerusalem from the Jebusites and made it the capital. David was just amazing. In fact, the Bible says about him something we can't understand, that David was a man after God's own heart. How would God say someone is after his own divine heart? David was amazing. The only thing is, that's not the whole story with David. Abraham had his faith fail a couple of times. David didn't have his faith fail. David had a explosion. A self-destructive nuclear warhead hit him. He turned his back on God, not for a day or a week, but for months. He did some dastardly things. Why would you want pure and holy Jesus to be linked with son of David? For those of you who don't know the story, David became king and everything was good. But you know, if you relax at any moment and you're not careful, like the Bible says, watch and pray, be alert. Your enemy, like goes, Satan, goes about like a roaring lion. David relaxed, you know, relaxed. And he should have been out fighting a battle, and he wasn't. He was at home in Jerusalem, just chilling. And he went out on the roof one night, and he looked, and there was a beautiful woman bathing on another rooftop. And because he was king, he just sent someone and said, tell her to come. He didn't know who she was. Her name happened to be Bathsheba. And her husband was not at home because he was a general in David's army fighting for David. At the same time, David said, bring her here. So he brought her there. He went to bed with her, had sexual relations. Then he finds out a little while after that, she's pregnant with his child. So what does that godly David do who wrote, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want? That one, that David. He sends a message to his main general, Joab, and says, send Uriah the Hittite. He's not even a Jew. Send him home. I want to talk to him. I want to give him some medals. They didn't have medals in those days. They just put little bones on your chest or something. And he comes home and, and he says, thank you for fighting the Lord's battles. Why don't you go home? Be with your wife and family. You deserve the rest. So he wakes up in the morning and he's figuring, that's good. He went home. He slept with his wife. This will cover up this pregnancy. Who No one will ever know. But Uriah is so loyal that he didn't go home. This guy's a problem. He wouldn't go home. And when David says, I hear you slept outside the palace. Yeah, how can I go home and enjoy my family when God's soldiers are fighting the battles of the Lord? Oh, king, I am loyal to you. And David went, I, where did I find this guy? So he keeps him another night and he gets him drinking. Enough wine so that he'll get happy and go home. And he'll be with his wife, and that will cover over things. But he gives him too much to drink. And he gets so drunk that he can't make it home. He falls asleep outside the palace. He's drunk. So the next morning, David says, Uriah went home. No, he slept it off right like 100 feet from where your room is. What? 
This is never going to work. This guy doesn't want to be with his family. What's this world coming to when people don't want to go home and be with their family? It has all of that hypocrisy in it. You got it? He sends them back to the battlefield, and he sends a message, an email. He put it in writing. Someone heard what he said. He tells Joab, attack this certain city, go to the walls, and then suddenly withdraw all the troops except for Uriah, the Hittite, and leave him alone, stranded. Joab does it. What everyone was thinking? I mean, what, what madness is this? Oh, David just gave these orders to attack and leave this guy hanging up dry. So it happens, and Uriah gets killed, and Joab sends back the report, and at the end of the report, I know this is bad news, we suffered some defeats, but King David, here's the postscript, P.S. Uriah the Hittite fell in battle, he's dead. And David goes, oh, brother, in this something, war is really crazy. You know, some live, some die. He did this, it's in the Bible. Why God put it in the Bible? It's for us to learn. So he then takes Bathsheba to be his wife. And how did that all work out? So for weeks and months, he blocks himself off from God. Have you ever done anything like that in your life? You know you're so wrong, you block yourself off from God because you know you can't stand one second in his presence. And that's what he did. He blocked himself off. Didn't write any psalms. Didn't write any new songs. And then one day a prophet comes to him and tells him this little story. Hey, did you know this guy came and he wanted a lamb for his guest? And instead of buying one or getting it from some rich person, he went to a family that only had one lamb and he ripped that lamb from them and he killed that lamb. And David said, what? Do not tell me that. Do not go there. Who is that man that took that lamb from that poor little family? And the prophet said, you the man. (laughs) Am I correct or not here? And David gets convicted and goes, oh, God, have mercy on me. He wrote Psalm 51 probably then. He wrote Psalm 32. He had remorse, and God forgave him. So in closing here, why would God put that story in the Bible? I mean, even if it happened, can't we just skip over some things? Do you have to go there? No, don't you get it? God wanted David in that line so that everyone knew when Jesus came, forget faith that fails. He can take the biggest disaster you can make for yourself and still change it and still forgive and still restore. Does God not deserve a hand clap of praise from all of us? David gets restored, and God proves that he not only helps people whose faith falters, like we all have, but my goodness, haven't all of us, don't you identify with any of this? Haven't you made some messes for yourself? I know we're all quiet because we're all self-righteous. But we're like David. What? He took what lamb? Oh, my goodness. You talk about a bad actor. David was a bad actor. And God says, no, I love bad actors. I love people who have crashed and everything's been blown 
to smithereens because when I come in, I can fix, I can heal, I can restore, I will show mercy. I will do things out of your mess. When I do the bless on your mess, I can make something you can't even imagine. So today, to all of you, wherever you're at, I don't know where you're at. I prayed all day yesterday, God, how do I apply this to our lives? I can't get into your life. I don't know what you're going through. But I know one thing. People need the Lord. Do people not need the Lord? If you're drifting and your faith has failed... Jesus is waiting for you. He's the son of Abraham. If you're in something you're so embarrassed about and, or have gone through it and the enemy is now pounding you and pounding you, bringing you into condemnation, arise today and in the name of the Lord, resist the devil and say, no, he's the son of David. He identifies with David and his mess because he loves to change messes. He delights in mercy. So if I would just stop here, we have a pretty amazing Savior, don't we? But God won't let it stop. He's got to go that one extra mile. Just, I can't even believe what I'm going to read to you. So when that's all done, David's back on the throne. And I mean, the name Bathsheba, the name Uriah the Hittite. If I was in charge of the palace guard, I would say, everybody, heads up. Hey, ho, ho, hey, heads up, listen. Do not say the name Bathsheba. I know she's one of David's wives. He has several. Let's focus on the purer part of this story. And never say the name Uriah. Never. Don't say it. It's a bad moment. So now in the genealogy, Jesse begot David. Now David has to beget. Does anyone here know their Bible? Who was the next king after David? Very good. Solomon. So Solomon's got to come on the picture. David's got to be the begetter. So which wife? He has about five, six. Listen, look. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Out of all the wives that David had, God said, no, the next king, the wisest of them all, I want him born from the woman who was part of the mess because I'm full of mercy. And I will not only forgive, I forget. I wipe the slate clean. I'll give you a new beginning. Come on, can the church clap and say amen to that? Notice. Notice the little nuance there. They wouldn't even put Bathsheba's name. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. You have to remind everybody that Uriah, who had been done away with, who was part of the mess, it's his former wife that will be the mother of King Solomon. Oh, where sin abounds, grace even more abounds. How vast is the love of God? How high, how low, how wide, I mean... Oh, my goodness, the love of God. Did you know he loves you today? You're sitting there. You don't even believe in him. You didn't even sing when the singers were singing. He loves you anyway. 
You curse him, he'll still love you. He'll be chasing you. You'll go to bed tonight, he'll still chase you. You'll say, I didn't like that preacher. I don't like Polish people anyway, but I don't like that guy. And Jim Jones, Jim Symbola, it's all the same. It's all a cult. Guess what? You can dismiss me, but you won't get rid of Jesus. He will hunt you down. Come on. Can we say amen to that? The only way I can end this service is if you're here today and while I was speaking, you felt a warmth in your heart, a pull, a tenderness, a something. That was God speaking to you, trying to draw you closer to him. You could be going to church for 30 years or this could be your first time. I don't know, but I know one thing. Only Jesus can satisfy your soul. He's the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He's the son of Solomon who was the son of Uriah's former wife. Oh God. You know, God's grace goes so much deeper than any of us can imagine. We think we know God's grace. We don't know God's grace. It's so deep. It's so wonderful. And if you're here today and you'd like me to pray over you as we end this service, you just stand right where you are in the balcony or downstairs and say, Pastor, I felt the Lord drawing me. I know he loves me. I want to get closer. I I need an adjustment in my relationship with Jesus this Christmas season. Close your eyes with me. Lord, please apply these truths about your love and grace and help people to reach out and just trust you today to do what needs to be done. Look at me. Can't you picture Solomon growing up? He just came to me so strongly. And he's with his mother, Bathsheba. Mommy, tell me what you and Daddy know about God. Tell me, Mommy, how good is God? You're my mommy. I'm going to be the next king. Bathsheba wipes a tear from her eye and says, you have no concept of how deep God's love is. I won't go into all the details, son, but me and your father, we were in a mess. And God chose to bless the mess. And now you're my son and you're going to be the king. Not because of us, but because where sin abounds, grace even more abounds. Father God, I thank you. There's no pit so deep. Your love isn't deeper still. Help my friends here. I don't know where they're coming from geographically or more importantly spiritually, but help them. Draw them close to you. Put your arms around them today. Let them know that they have no better friend than you, Jesus. Family will let them down. 
Family might even oppose them, but you'll never let them go. You will hang, keep them close. Oh, Jesus, we love you. We praise you. Forgive us our sins, our trespasses. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. There's not one righteous person in the building. We all need a Savior. Thank you for being such a wonderful Savior. How marvelous, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. How wonderful, how marvelous is my Savior's love for me. We thank you, Emmanuel, that you're with us today. Heal broken hearts up here. Cleanse from sin. Purify conscience. Give new hope. Restore. Give a new beginning. If there's shattered relationship up here, heal it, Lord. Heal shattered relationships, Lord. And draw us all closer to you. I thank you for each one of these people who have walked up here. You know exactly what they're going through. And you, not me, you know exactly what they need today. Do it as we worship you and we praise you. Get us home safely. Bless the offering. Bless everything that happens at the end, Lord. But we just want you to know, te amo mucho, Señor. Te amo mucho, Señor. We love you so much. We love you so much. God bless you. Amen. Can we give the Lord one last hand clap of praise?